0: The concept of the green economy is nothing new. But what do we actually have to do right now in order to build that green economy of the future? Last week, we talked about the changing demand for energy and how individual corporate and policy-making behaviour needs to shift to meet it. Today, we dive into the other side of the equation, the changing supply of energy. Hello, welcome to episode three of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a science writer, podcaster and researcher, and I'm obsessed with how the world works. In Looking Glass, we want to examine the details of how the world works and what can make it better. Challenging conversations about our society, exploring ideas and innovations across disciplines to create a blueprint for our future world. So today we're talking about how to supply the ever-increasing and changing global energy demand. And beyond that, what making that supply might mean for the planet in terms of politics, power and opportunity. My guests today are Dr. Daniel Scholten and Dr. Bemi Olulai. Dr. Daniel Scholten is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Technology, Policy and Management of Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. His research interests include the geopolitics of renewable energy, energy security and the governance of renewable energy systems. Dr. Bemi Olulai is a research fellow at Imperial College in the Faculty of Natural Sciences Centre for Environmental Policy. Her focus is around the regulation and policy for industrial decarbonisation, offering the opportunity for adoption and increased market share of low-carbon technologies in the industrial sector. I kicked us off by
1: asking Bemi what the size of the problem in the industrial sector is. If you look at industry on the global scale so around the world, I think CO2 emissions from industry is, about, is over 30% of global CO2 emissions. That's just one sector of the economy. And as population increases, industrial demand for energy will increase as well as CO2 emissions if things are not put in place or if strategies are not enacted to make sure that for every increase in product, there is a reduction in CO2 emissions. So CO2 emissions from industry is such a big deal, especially since industry is actually one of the mainstay of any economy. The the more industries you have, the more developed you are or the more industrialized um, an economy is set to be. So it, it, it is a big number from one single sector. I think CO2 emissions from industry is higher um, than, than from the domestic sector in the UK and also looking at the global figures. The ability to power um, an industrial sector
0: being at the root of a country's development is obviously um, a big topic. Talk- topic that I want to get into today, but before we do that, let's let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess, what's standing in the way of making these changes. I mean, Bemi, you've you've often discussed that you know we've already got the technology; it's already here. So, what is it that's stopping um, us from curbing or reducing that that huge number, that thirty percent?
1: You're very correct, Gemma. Um, The technologies are there, we've defined the pathways, we've explored the scenarios. Um, I think it all boils down to the financial um, challenges, barriers that go with decarbonizing industry or decarbonizing the entire economy. is going to come at an added cost, although I must say the value of reducing CO2 is greater than the cost, but we are ruled by, as a cost ruled economics or a cost-based business model. So the cost is the major barrier um, to decarbonization. There are all the barriers that have to do with, yes, we have the technologies, but not all of them have been tested. Um, And there's a lot of political uncertainty uh, which regards where industry will stand in the future. It's interesting because I think a lot of the time when we discuss uh, sort of big science and
0: tech topics, but specifically when we're talking about energy, uh, the conversation sometimes veers into either being about the economy and about industry and about cost or being about politics and these kind of bigger conversations that have to be had. And as I as suppose we all know, people who work in the sector, we know that this is this is about a political economy. It's both and it's about the intersections. And you can't look at one without the other. So Daniel, let's let's build a little bit um on this point we're obviously we talked a little bit here about industry having to get its act together um but we're also beginning to talk about um using quite localized energy systems that they're going to be working off which is an interesting idea but ultimately the, as we said earlier the ability to power an industrial sector has been at the root of a country's development um in many cases so what are the implications of these changes, whether it's about switching to these more localised systems, or indeed even just the introduction and the the popularity and the push for these net zero targets around the world.
2: Yeah, there are a number of, of things to to mention. I think here, and if I look at the industry, um, I think there's quite a lot of you know they're starting to move quite a bit. I think the 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 realization has sunk in that we are you know facing one of the most you know let's say largest example of 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 global wide creative destruction going to happen where you see uh, new energy companies coming in putting also pressure on established oil and gas companies for you know these new markets and the uh, the incumbents they, they really have to think. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to sit there and, and, and sell oil and natural gas until we run out, or should we you know shift from being an oil and gas company to an energy company? They have done this relabeling, or rebranding as it were, and then moving into the renewable sector. And are they the well you know are they the ones which are best positioned to to win this competition or not? So that's that's one side of the uh, of, of of the coin. Um, I, d- I do think that what you also see is with, uh, especially with solar PV and the possibility for every household to to produce some uh, some electricity themselves, this is of course going to cut into their existing business models for all these electricity, you know, sellers, or you know, producers, because if you, if you think if if I'm not sure how it is in Britain, but in the Netherlands, it's roughly one third of electricity you know, goes to these households, you know, there's a huge market share which they potentially would stand to lose if uh, if if all these houses would really start to uh, you know produce uh, their electricity more uh, themselves so so that's uh, that's more on a, on, a, on the local side you see also a lot of these energy cooperatives emerging which are quite different business models especially in areas where you know if 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 you if the market is not doing it and the government is not helping you then cooperatives tend to be a very interesting option because you then can do it yourself on a more global scale of course um, going back to this creative destruction you there's of course this this on the one hand this hope huh? this race this competition for new uh, technologies uh, new markets that can be serviced so so that is uh, yeah, so that is quite a, a lucrative business but on the downside you of course also have these stranded assets in uh, potentially stranded assets in in the oil and gas industry and for some countries that is of huge concern because it puts a lot of pressure. Uh, on their, uh, basically their social contract or their socioeconomic stability or even political stability if these countries would no longer receive the income um, associated with oil and gas. And of course, you don't really know where it is going. You, you could hope for more democratization in some of the uh, petro-states, but then you're optimistic. You could also be pessimistic and say, okay, this can going to lead to total collapse and we're going to see similar things in those countries as we saw in, in some of the uh Uh, uh, North African countries uh, in in the last decade and, you know, with the uh, accompanying migratory flows, etc.
0: I mean, there's no one answer to all of this. I mean, I think what you've both described here is this very complex interlinking system that is also, I guess... um, got this sort of invisible thing happening underneath it which is called incentive structures and so many different players and stakeholders have these different and sometimes clashing incentives which probably makes working together kind of difficult I'd love to hear from both of you could you kind of somehow try and maybe map or talk a little bit about is there conflict with those incentives, whether it's from government and business and individuals? And, and is there maybe some examples of how that's being managed in a way that's, I don't know, everyone wins or is there is it a sort of zero sum game, Daniel, let's let's stick with you for a second.
2: the uh, the last comment is quite interesting because indeed it's the zero sum game. Um, I, I think if you if you look at it among countries and then we I, I want to look a bit more in between uh, or within countries. Among countries, you see quite a different way this is framed, this whole energy transition. To some, this is really a win-win situation where, on the one hand, renewables can increase energy security. You know, you don't have to import it anymore. You can make it yourself because they're practically anywhere, at least wind and solar are. And then the other side is, are you going to make money out of it? Hey, are you going to produce these products? Are you going to sell these technologies or rare materials that are necessary to build these technologies? And here, for example, you see quite a big difference in the narrative between Western and Eastern Europe, where in Western Europe, it's really the win-win. We see it as an industrial opportunity, it's good for the climate, and it is also good for energy security. And in Eastern Europe, uh, especially Poland and a few other countries, you see, yeah, so so what does this mean for us? I mean, yes, we can see the advantage of energy security, but what about electricity prices? And why should we just become dependent on uh, German solar instead of Russian gas? And, and they have a huge domestic industry within, you know, within Poland regarding coal. So what about all of these jobs? They don't stand to gain in that aspect so much at this point. So, so it's not a win-win for everybody, uh, certainly not. And in, in, in most of my research, I basically frame it in, in in four countries or four groups of countries. You either go from being an exporter. To becoming, again, an exporter, you can be an exporter, become an importer, then you really kind of lose, huh? or you are an current importer, you become an exporter of these technologies, or you're already an importer and you stay an importer. So these are these four broad categories, and, and depending on where you live, you you fall in one of those.
0: And Bemi, we'd love to hear your take on this as well, particularly considering your sort of expertise looking at industry, because when you're looking at it from a country perspective, um, as Daniel's explaining, you know, you can look at it from, okay, what are all the different facets that are important within my country? Energy, jobs, uh, climate, so on and so forth. But when you're looking at it from a perspective, particularly of a large industrial um, company, A lot of these companies are global, right? So they're not necessarily looking at it from a country perspective. They're going, how can I ensure I'm still getting the market in many different places? Um, So tell us a little bit about this, I guess, this question of zero-sum game or incentive structures when you're looking at it from the industrial perspective.
1: I agree with Daniel. It is not a win-win situation for everyone involved. Um, and it's depending on sectors and also has the country dimension into it. And that's why I said there is actually no business case to decarbonize industry. There is um, a climate case, which is, is good for the climate. There is also some form of energy security case if you are using localised um, energy supply for industry. But when you come to what is the business case, what's the money that we can generate from switching from what we currently do that is reliable to something that is more secure There's really no business case. And if you look at the country specific dependencies, some countries like the UK um, are able to come up with a nice strategy to support or to cushion industry as they make that decision, you know, to transition to a a cleaner energy supply. You know, the UK just um, is about to invest about 1 billion pounds in the industrial sector, but not all countries have these as as their top priority. Um, So it's, and like you correctly said, um, industries are global companies. They have branches in different parts of the world. So what's going to happen because it's not a win-win situation. They just move from the part of the world where they are losing to a part of the world where they are winning. So the localized CO2 emission of a country might be reducing, but globally, CO2 emissions will continue to remain the same because at the end of the day, we've not established a scenario where it's truly, um, oh, I would say a win-win is a form of just transition, isn't it, where it's a win-win for all parties involved. So the industrial sector is the same. Um, not all countries in the world have um, that the, the right regulatory environment or the right policy environment to cushion that shift to clean energy supplies. This is why I always find um, like
0: really niche laws and regulation absolutely fascinating. I think that sort of area, if you're not a lawyer or somebody who works in that space can be seen as quite boring, but it's very fascinating to see how one small shift in a law can completely change where a company situates themselves and changes entire economies and the way tax is paid. For instance, I always find, for instance, um, Luxembourg to be a really interesting example in the space sector. They have very good uh, tax reasons for space companies to be there and they all flock there, you know, to Luxembourg of all places. Um, So it's interesting to kind of hear this same, I guess, what might feel like invisible forces that are sort of moving uh, things around and making these decisions more so than um, than people or, or political well backed by people or even lobbying to some degree. Um, Bemi, I'd also love to um, get your take. We heard Daniel talk a little bit about the Netherlands. You were born and raised in Nigeria. What's the sort of situation there from both a sort of political and, and industrial perspective?
1: Uh, i mean i think um, nigeria is one of the countries that I signed up to fulfill um the the paris agreement in you know, us stating their national determined contributions um two years ago uh, we actually um, took a trip to nigeria to have a talk with the energy commission of nigeria to speak about what does plan for low carbon or zero carbon is for different sectors of the economy and what their pathways are together with what the challenges are and one of the major challenges challenge is cost so it's who is going to pay but i see it as a challenge and also an opportunity because nigeria is a growing economy so if we can make the right the right investments and create value from transitioning our indus- the industrial sector to low carbon, then we can begin to sell low carbon goods um, and also move from an importer to an exporter of low carbon goods. It's just about determining the right economic conditions or the right framework. I guess that's what I'm finding very interesting. This idea of um,
0: i mean there's a difficulty here right where when we're talking about nations are developing requiring um more industrialization or wanting more industrialization for various reasons such as jobs and income and and, and living standards and, and all sorts um you know you hear sort of uh, those in the west sometime or in developed countries imposing this idea of, you know, you must try and not use all these things and methods and processes that we've used in order to be wealthy com- countries over the past hundred years. Um, but it's interesting to hear you frame it also as an opportunity. Is that is that an idealistic take?
1: Or you, is that really realistic for developing nations? It's not realistic, but it's also not idealistic. I think it's pragmatic. So the reason why I frame it that way is the impact of climate change will be the greatest impact will be countries around the equator. And Nigeria is one of those countries. So all the inc- increases in temperature, rise in sea levels will fill it. And we're not we're not trying to throw blames on who is responsible, but that's just the science of the earth. So the reason why I say it's an opportunity is I mean there are two options, isn't it? We could mitigate or we could just um Pre- prepare for for doomsday. I see mitigation as an opportunity because, especially since we're at the point of discussing industrialization. So, if you do the economics, it's like we don't have industries. So, if you go for clean industries, it might be a better business case. If we had, if we were industrialized, then I will say, okay probably there is no opportunity there because what you're comparing against is an industrialized country, is a country that has 24-7 electricity, then we'll have the same issues with the West. Is the economic it isn't. But we're looking looking at Nigeria, I know I grew up in Nigeria and I know that charging my phone was a luxury. You know, so if I'm comparing to that, and it's still the same because my parents still live there, I'm comparing to that. And even within the industrial sector, if I'm comparing to that base, that's why I say it's an opportunity because we're going to get there eventually. But this is an opportunity for us to do it in a cleaner way.
2: May I ask a question just in between? Because uh, we often talk this uh, about this issue of, of leapfrogging yeah, and the potential for, for doing that, because in, you already mentioned your mobile phone. And this was one of the examples where many African countries didn't have to build all these landlines like we did and could go to mo- you know mobile telephony directly. Do you see any, you know, let's say possibilities for that in the in the energy sector, let's say? Cause there's a lot of potential for local generation that you know that you don't have to build all of these grids and or pipeline systems and stuff like that
1: exactly last time i visited nigeria i was driving home to my parents house and i saw a solar panel and i saw a wind turbine i'm like okay because these these areas don't have access to the grid anyway and they can buy a solar panel from from china or for some other countries and so Because of this lack of um, centralised infrastructure, there's an opportunity to bring in localised generation that depend on renewable. And also we have abundance of solar. We've got wind in some parts of the country. Our electricity system runs on hydro. And coal and natural gas. So that's what I'm saying is an opportunity. And if I look at the industrial sector, um, which is mostly dominated by oil um, exploration and production, we do have an opportunity to remain relevant to begin to maybe produce hydrogen from the resources we have, which can be sold, um, which can still be sold depending on what the future looks like. But this is an opportunity for us to. Channel renewable, integrate renewable into our production processes. At the beginning, it's not going to be easy peasy, to be honest. But once we start it, it's going to be better because then we we will be industrialized at some point, but we're doing it in a cleaner way. I
0: want to I want to uh turn to you Daniel because we're talking a little bit about I guess technology leapfrogging or technology innovation and how that's um not just a sensible thing from a, a a national level but also in terms of then playing on the world stage and industrializing through various different uh means as an exporter as well as a you know building industry um within countries I'm curious about your take on I guess Um, maybe political innovations or geopolitical innovations or different ways of doing things Um, in terms of managing, you know, you talked earlier about the issues with um, security, with how trade changes, reliance on different um, countries, you know, and and we hear a lot specifically in uh, the battery world, for instance, about the reliance on countries like China, for instance, which To some uh, people is we don't want to rely on certain kind of countries and to others, I think it's a a totally fair enough and good thing, depending on uh, the state of the climate. So I wonder if you could give us maybe some insight or some examples of, um, you know, what's happening in the kind of geopolitical arena with how we're getting around this big transition and what it's going to mean for switching trade.
2: Yeah, now you're asking me a question which I could easily uh, spend two hours in a lecture on, uh, <laughs> on addressing. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> let, let me try to sum up. Um, no, I, I think from a, from a renewable energy or energy transition perspective, and then looking at geopolitics. There are a number of of major expectations that we uh, that we expect to see. I think first and foremost is of course the abundance of renewable energy and the widespread nature, which is so very different from fossil fuels, which are so concentrated in a few areas or countries uh, around the around the globe. Uh, which which really is a a, a big uh, a game changer for geopolitics as you as you kind of lose this distinction between net exporters net importers and we all ha- have at least to some degree as yes, as domestic capacity allows can produce our energy at home which really stakes the sting out of out of things it's no longer let's say begging some shake in <laughs> for whether we can have their oil or not or the Russians it's it's much more okay we can. Produce a quite a, a large number ourselves, and the rest we import. It also means that many of our neighbouring countries, wherever you are, have the same face the same, let's say, make or buy decision. And 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 in in, in the net result of that is you're much more flexible in in um, in choosing your your energy partners because it's simply more partners to choose from, and and that makes global relations from oligopolistic to more symmetrical, uh, in, in in a way. And that's I think a huge game changer. I think the other one. Uh, the major one is to shift from from trade in energy sources, uh, let's say coal, oil, natural gas, to those of energy carriers, where we really look at electricity or hydrogen or other new gases, where which which are which is going to be quite different. I mean, solar and wind, they all turn into electricity, and uh, electricity really suffers from some long distance losses. I know engineers are working on that, but for now, it doesn't really make any sense to transport electricity. You know, across the whole globe, you know, that is, there's no business case for that. It's much more of a regional affair. So I think w- within Europe, the European Union, of course, is ideal. Let's say in terms of scale of combining, you know, solar from the south and wind from the North Sea, so on and so forth. And and this is the the scale in which this uh, let's say a regional grid could could really work. Um, but it doesn't really make sense to import electricity all the way from China. That's, why would you ever do that? Um, Hydrogen, of course, has the opportunity to be a bit more long distance because you could, uh, or if you if you change it into ammonia or methanol or use any of the other gases and or e-fuels, then 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 it's possible. The question, of course, there is also how far do you want to go because you know there are shipping costs and hydrogen as a carrier can also be produced pretty much anywhere if you have electrolysis, which nowadays is still quite. Expensive, so there's a lot of hype around hydrogen. But the methane reforming with carbon capture is still like three times as cheap as, as the as green hydrogen is. So from electrolysis, Um, I think these are the two main main issues that you're going to see. So it's more of a world that, if you compare it to now in the oil trade or LNG trade, which is relatively global and everybody has a stake in what is going on uh, everywhere else. Let's say in the Middle East, um, this might be a world that is much more regionalized in terms of of energy Uh, where you do see a lot of interconnection of course is with the industrial competition or access to these critical materials at least during the transition before we have built all of this capacity in wind and solar Um, this is where countries still will uh, have to engage in some uh, probably uh, competitive behavior uh, getting access to critical materials um, for wind turbines solar panels and the like Uh, but it's also different in terms of dependency than than oil and gas. I mean, um, these critical materials, once you have them, you put them you know, into the technology, you build your wind turbine and it stays there for 20 or 30 years, which is quite different from importing natural gas or oil because that happens on a continuous basis. And so it's on a daily basis, you can build uh yeah, it's it's much more continuous. So, so this is this is quite different. And there's also means to recycle or use different technologies, so it's it's perhaps less urgent. So I expect perhaps a bit of political pressure during this transition. But then you if the, if a country does that, and let's say this is, will be China because they hold quite a lot of uh, dominance in the area, in rare earth materials, then new mines could open. Uh, countries would adjust. Um, so, so there will be a counter response and there are other possibilities to, to prevent the, uh, uh, let's say, a lasting effect of that.
0: So we've talked a little bit then about, I guess, technological innovations or different kind of mindsets and approaches, particularly, uh, you know, with the the Nigeria example. And now we've talked a little bit about, I guess, the the political innovations or trade innovations or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and and both kind of you know you're, you're both painted this picture and I'm thinking this makes complete sense why why don't we already have it what you know and I Emmy mean, earlier on you talked a little bit about the sort of the, the the financial or the business case for industry and and these sort of costs up front being so difficult what's the I I guess what what's stopping these changes happening at that sort of I don't want to say higher level at the politics level but at this kind of system level is it you need to make a political case uh, as well as a business case. Is there, you know, I'm thinking, is there not enough public pressure? There's obviously a lot of huge public pressure in terms of change um, and, and, you know, doing some things to do with the climate, but maybe not having the understanding of what those solutions could be. I'd love to hear from both of you what it is that you think is um, still standing in the way of these big, broad political economy uh, changes that, um, that you're painting that sounds pretty doable and and pretty much making sense for a lot of people. Bemi, let's start with you.
1: In my personal opinion, I'll say there's not a lot of political pressure and it's not um is it's not a global pressure. I mean I know globally most countries have signed up um to the Paris Agreement, um, but that doesn't translate into enough pressure to make the changes happen or to make us um establish the business case. Also uh, as as a researcher, a lot of the research in this area has been to establish the pathways, the technologies, the systems. But I don't think we've shown how to achieve those. We know we always talk about it. For I haven't seen like. You know, that direct body of applied research in exactly how to take it from a conversation to to a reality. Um, I mean, countries around the world try to publish some form of strategy. I know um, in Canada just published their hydrogen um, strategy, but it was also, you know, uh, talk about what they want to do. Um, not necessarily specifics about how so by you know 2020 this is what we want uh, by 2025 and that to see it happen uh, it's more like an implementation plan um, is is lacking and that will come from some political pressure on on ourselves on industry. On your first point about the the maybe there
0: isn't enough of a political will or political pressure when you're talking globally, are you sort of saying there's a sort of tragedy of the commons in terms of we have this this system and we kind of need everybody to buy into it in order to get this change? And if only one country does it, then, you know, similar to the Luxembourg example, if you change the, change the laws and they approach in one country and it doesn't work short term for... People or companies will just move elsewhere, and that kind of makes everything fall down.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. We need um, countries to not only buy into it, but also to discuss how, like, to buy into the change, but also to buy into what they need to do to make the change. Got it,
0: Daniel. We'd love to hear um, your thoughts as well on this um, this big question of why, it is we still just you know these these great ideas that you are putting forward that make sense, why we're just still not there.
2: Yeah, I think I have similar experiences as Bimi has. Um, if I look at the the last decade or so, or perhaps even two, I one of the reasons I focused on the geopolitical implications of renewable energy was that everybody was, you know, arguing because of the environment or pollution or local air pollution to move towards renewable energy and, you know, all kinds of other measures. And this hasn't really... Um, yeah, achieved what we would have needed to achieve uh, within the, let's say, uh, for 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 the climate. Um, so so my, my approach was much more to to highlight the industrial and political gains that my might had and hope that policymakers would listen a bit more to that. And it, I think this has just been very slow to emerge. I think that if you look at the uh, at policymakers, especially now, if I look at the European Union. I mean, they they brand themselves with the, the European Green Deal and as a geopolitical commission. But this is only just, you know, two years or so. It's very recent. So I think this is something that still has to sink in and, and where we have to perhaps wait a bit on that level. But the industry has been very crafty in, um, yeah, promoting a way that, that let me describe as, as business as usual, that, yeah, we're going to do it, but not just yet. It's not necessary just yet. I know many instances, I don't want to mention names and so on, but um, where you could hear, yeah, okay, for the next 30 years, it's still safe to invest in in oil, for example. And the moment it's no longer safe to invest in oil for the next 20, 30 years, that that business case goes out of the door and and all these investors are really afraid of that moment because that means, oh, they're going to pull out the money and then they're going to put it into something else, which probably is renewables or any other sector, but... I think that is, that is one of these points. And each time we see, uh, you know, the, the, when we have a crisis like this, so back in the day 2008 or, you know, all these uh, financial crises. And now first we see, we see all the volatility and we see the oil price going going crazy. Then we then we think, okay, so how are we, we going to use renewables to get out of it? And then each time we tend to see that, okay, so we're going to use the cheapest energy available to get us out of it. And it's all missed opportunities to really do something here. Um, but if, if I may end on, on a bit more positive note, I do see in uh, at least I had one of my students investigate this. I do we do see a bit of a change in the in let's say the strategy documents of these major oil and gas companies very late. Huh? So only just the last couple of years um really starting to mention the energy transition also that their stake or shareholders sorry uh, are, are becoming more aware and I think this is the pressure that that really needs to be you know um, put forward a bit more
0: you've both you've both um in various different points in this conversation we've kind of talked about. Both, you know, the issues with short-termism, uh, thinking only about what's next and not having that long view. Both from a monetary perspective, you know, invest now and, and reap uh, later, but also from that, you know, impact of climate change, from the sort of sustainability in terms of survivability of industry, um, and then of course uh, energy security as well. But I'm trying. I'm wondering, you know, we t- we. It feels like over the last couple of years, there has been a sort of a moment, you know, we've, we've gone from talking about climate change to we're now in a climate emergency, a climate crisis. And um, sometimes with big, what might feel like sudden changes, you can have um, really negative issues with that. I mean, wars have broken out over, uh, you know arguably less, uh, less crazy things than the climate breaking down. Right. And I, I, how do you feel this moment is from a, perhaps a tension perspective or a, um, security perspective or safety perspective, especially when citizens are kind of just focused on getting by and wanting to make sure they can, uh, live their lives. Politicians are only in for four to eight years, only caring about their term. Um, Is is this now a big enough moment to make people change, as opposed to this long term thing that people are perhaps not as um, not as considerate of, Daniel?
2: Uh, I'm afraid we haven't reached that spot just yet. Uh, I hope always that in ten years we will have reached it, but I I don't think the urgency is uh, is is that clear to most people, and that um, I, I do see some movement, you know. Those who are are really into this climate and environment and measure, it, they they know quite well. Even even many of the military, they really take these climate issues into account because they know that problems over there will will spill over into here. If not just for migratory, migratory flows, but but even all of these conflicts. Um, so 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 so, there's definitely enough awareness. I do think that we sometimes underestimate the the the, the size of, of the change, and this also makes it. Uh, perhaps difficult. I mean, it's not just a matter of, of, of energy. The energy sector itself. If you just think about how many, how do you say it in English? Um, adjacent sectors are affected by it. It's incredible. I mean, it's even the garage that you 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 uh, bring a car to for repairs. They were going to be affected because they are going to have to switch their whole expertise just from 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 internal combustion engines to to batteries. And, and, and the same thing happens to all of these uh, uh, the other sectors, which are all across the supply chain of, of oil and natural gas, from the resources to the production, to the refinery, to the transmission, etc. So So this is a huge undertaking where people have been educated Working in in, in in an industry for for decades, and and they have to be reskilled, or they have to slowly but surely be you know uh, you know going with pension, and then young people coming in doing more something with renewables, so so there's there's a lot of a lot of uh, things at stake here.
0: Bemi, where do you sort of see us in terms of you know where we are in the transition, or or whether you feel this this moment is a moment, or whether we're not quite there yet? I,
1: I was listening to to Daniel's fantastic answer, and I think he said it correctly like I don't see the urgency um yet but I know that people are more responsive to step changes and in the in in the transition timeline I think we're still in the phase for step changes. Um, I'm hoping we do those step changes that can lead to greater benefits now as opposed to in 10 years' time where we need to do abrupt changes um, in order to you know, to make change happen. Another thing I, I wanted to say is, I mean, the pandemic has hit us. Our lives have changed. People have become more reflective. I think this is probably a good time to open economies or reopen economies using those step changes that can encourage people to build a lifestyle around thinking about, you know, what the climate, thinking about the environment. And I must, I always, I must applaud people because, you know, recycling has, is now like in every home, um, we often take it for granted, but that was a step change that happened years ago. Um, So, this is an opportunity given that you know what we have the pandemic what will we'll soon be reopening economics i think this is an opportunity to encourage people to be more reflective also about the environment as their health and you know what start those step changes that that will make um, a big difference
2: I, I think this is a quite a nice point, uh, you know, it's just sad that we always need such a pandemic or something big to happen before we do something. It's it's so much better, like you said, Baby, that if you do it this stepwise process, then, then you can avoid this big moment, this big revolutionary moment, which usually leads to instability and all kinds of other problems right? in, in terms of international relations. You don't want to wait and then suddenly change everything because that's you know that that scares markets. That scares political, you know, longstanding political relationships among countries. So, so that's uh, that's one thing. But if, if there's any good to be ha- uh, to be said, I think we have seen quite stable investments in renewables throughout the pandemic. So that seems to be quite a uh, a good sign. And um, on the other hand, we also had a long campaign against smoking, and people are able to change their behavior in this fashion. Eh? But it needs to be, you know, widely. Uh, carried out uh, so that everybody is, is, is in support uh, of that as well. I'm
0: gonna ask one final um question of you both, and it's, it's it, considering the fact we've spent uh, you know the last uh, quite some time talking about how complicated these systems are, how intertwined they are, um, how difficult all these challenges are. I've, I've got the vibe of hopefulness and of opportunity and of um. I oh, don't know, there is a way forward. And I'm curious as to, you know, with both of you researching this day in and day out and being very close to the complexity um, and the bigness of this of this challenge, um, whether you're, I guess, you're optim- how optimistic you are about a sort of peaceful and efficient transition that we all desperately need. Bemi, let's start with you.
1: As a person... Um, I am optimistic when I look at the news, walk around, see what people are doing, see the conversations that are happening, you know, you know, trying to make that change. As a researcher, I'm also optimistic um, that, you know what, since we know how to do it, it's one thing that it ticks the box and then we have a timeline by 2050 for the UK. So I'm very optimistic that we'll make that step change and also that incremental change and also that exponential change to get there. It's just, you know, respecting the process that I think is necessary, but I'm, I'm quite optimistic. Daniel?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of two-step forward, one step back. I think the, the two steps forwards are related to the final result of this transition. I think we do end up in a, in a better world in which we see, at least from a geopolitical point of view, a depolitization of, of energy by and large. That's not to say that there will not be any, you know, arguments over who owns which connector or interconnector or, or pipeline or whatever, uh, but it's better than this one. The, the one step back really is the transition period uh, because that's the challenge. This is when... New energy relations are going to be forged, and old ones are going to be abandoned. And we need to find new, uh, but we need to find ways uh, to make this transition somehow together. And 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 uh, it, there is of course the instinct of telling some countries, like perhaps uh, you know the Russians or the Saudis, like ha ah, goodbye, it's your problem now. Ah, we don't need you anymore. But that also doesn't really solve any other uh, challenges or you know what we have with them. It's much better just to. To partner up with perhaps some North African countries, as the Europeans, in 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 teaming up with uh, uh, you know, creating this new renewable energy system, yeah, and we can use their solar and, and and they can use our wind and so on and so forth. Um, but the transition period is going to be quite the challenge, and, and we have often discussed with, with with my students, you know, how to. Produce a smooth global energy transition, and with smooth, uh, we usually mean inclusive, uh, so that everybody is on board, not too big winners and losers. It needs to be just in a, in a way, huh? and and but also fast. We can't wait, huh? and that the, the the speed is what pressures us uh, into this, and and. There we have to find a way, and I think especially the years between 2030, 2050 will be crucial because this is when um, everything fully gets underway and and we can't really handle the inflow of of renewable energy in our current energy systems as easily as we do now because then we we really need to reinforce the grid, we really need to have batteries, we really need to have perhaps more uh, something, pipelines for, for hydrogen. And that's what really will will uh, will push us uh, into these changes. And we need to find a way to to harness this.
0: Amazing. I think that was a nice hopeful note to, to end on. Daniel and Bemi, thank you so much for joining us um, on the show and sharing all of your expertise, your candid opinions, and of course, your, your hope and optimism too.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: My guests today were Dr. Daniel sholton and Dr. Bemi Olulai. Next time, I'm going to be exploring the future of the workforce, asking how we'll fill the roles we need to ensure a green economy is possible in the future. Until then, remember you can catch up with the first series of Looking Glass wherever you get your podcasts. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Rosie Stouffer. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The researcher is Fatuma Keira. Original music and sound mix by Alex Port-Felix. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan and the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. Special thanks to Irene Maliraki for this episode. Later this year, the IOP will be launching a series of conversations co-produced with local communities that will explore the role of physics in our everyday lives, discussing the implications for all of us in creating an equitable, green future. So keep your eyes and ears open for that.